This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In a high-profile clash of religious rights and gay rights at the Supreme Court, religious rights won out. The court sided with a Catholic foster care agency that won't place children with same-sex couples because of its religious beliefs. In a unanimous decision, the court ruled that Philadelphia violated the Constitution when it excluded the agency from the city's foster care program. During oral arguments, some of the conservative justices questioned Philadelphia's policy, while others, like Justices Samuel Alito and Brett Kavanaugh, were upfront in their skepticism. It's not about ensuring that same-sex couples in Philadelphia have the opportunity to be foster parents. It's the fact that the city can't stand the message that Catholic Social Services and the Archdiocese are sending by continuing to adhere to the old-fashioned view about marriage. And what I fear here is that the absolutist and uh, extreme position that you're articulating would require us to go back on the promise of respect for religious believers. Joining me is constitutional law professor Steve Sanders of Indiana University's Morris School of Law. Some people expected a split along ideological lines because of religious rights versus gay rights. Were you surprised by the unanimous ruling? Well, I wasn't surprised by the unanimity of the ruling once I read the opinion and realized just really how narrow this decision is. It really does not break any new ground. It is more or less a straightforward application of existing Supreme Court precedent. And frankly, if the city of Philadelphia decides to make a fairly minor modification of its policy, it's possible that it could go back to not doing business with Catholic social services. So the opinion seems to have been crafted to be as narrow as possible while being faithful to the court's precedence. That, I think, explains why it got the support of Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, and especially Justice Kagan, who I think would not have joined an opinion that would have resulted in what she saw was an inappropriate expansion of the rights of religious organizations. Like the Obamacare decision, this case was argued way back in November. Do you think this decision took so long to come down because the justices or perhaps Chief Justice Roberts was lobbying to get a unanimous opinion? I suspect the main thing that caused it to take so long to come down was the fact that Justice Alito wrote a treatise. You know, Justice Alito's concurrence is by far the longest of all the opinions. It was joined by Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas. Justice Alito makes a full-throated argument in favor of a radical really revolution in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence of the Free Exercise Clause, and that would be to get rid of a 30-year-old precedent called Employment Division versus Smith. That was the larger question on the table in this case that the court theoretically could have reached. The opinion of the court said, you know, we don't need to reconsider a basic precedent in order to resolve this particular case. As I say, Justice Alito really, you know, just sort of wrote a brief in favor of overturning Employment Division versus Smith, something that even Justice Barrett basically said she wasn't interested in doing in this case. So Smith is a decision written by conservative icon Justice Antonin Scalia that's been the target of religious rights groups recently. Why so? 
That's correct, because Employment Division versus Smith basically said if a law is neutral and if it's generally applicable, if it's just a law that sort of everybody has to obey, it doesn't target religion in one way or another, then even if that law impinges on your religious practice, basically too bad. A religious believer is not a law unto himself or herself. Justice Scalia wrote. And so if there is a truly neutral and generally applicable, let's say, gay rights law, the fact that a business owner or a social service agency believes that complying with that law violates its religious liberty is not good enough to kick it up to strict scrutiny, to demand more of the government to justify that law. That's what Justice Alito and Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch would like to change. They would like to make it easier for religious believers to challenge any law that they believe impinges on their religious exercise. What the court found in this case, in the Fulton case, was that the law was not actually generally applicable because it allowed for the possibility of exceptions to the non-discrimination policy. And the fact the city wasn't willing to give Catholic social services an exception meant that Catholic Social Services wasn't being treated equally. So that did kick the level of scrutiny up to strict scrutiny because religion was being treated in a disadvantaged way. Basically, all the city of Philadelphia has to do is get rid of that provision that indicates that the Social Services Administration can make exceptions. If it makes clear the non-discrimination provision applies in a blanket way without any exceptions, then Catholic Social Service Agency will have to choose whether to be bound by that or whether to not do business with the city. That's assuming the city decides to go ahead and do that. Now, political pressures and other things may force the city to just sort of keep the status quo. As we discussed before, this sounds a lot like the Masterpiece Cake Shop case where a baker refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. The Supreme Court there refused to decide the central issue. Did this case clear that up at all, or is it still nebulous? It really didn't. This case is a little bit different because Masterpiece Cake Shop, in that case, the baker recognizing that this old precedent of Employment Division versus Smith made it difficult for him to succeed under the Free Exercise Clause, tried a free speech argument, basically saying that his cakes represented expressive speech. That was quite a novel argument. And as you say, the court essentially didn't reach that. The court decided it on a much narrower basis that this baker had been sort of mistreated uh, during the adjudication process that his religion had been disparaged and government doesn't get to do that. But it, it dodged making a statement about the larger question of free speech law when it involves religious speech. This case is similar. In fact, Justice Alito's opinion sort of analogized it to Masterpiece in that this decision, Fulton, was focused on the free exercise clause, not the free speech part of the First Amendment. It's different than Masterpiece in that way. But it's similar in the sense that this is really a decision that only applies to the specific circumstances involving this agency and the city of Philadelphia. It doesn't break any new ground. It doesn't expand the meaning or the scope of religious liberty beyond what the Supreme Court has already said in its precedence. Some are calling this a setback for gay rights. Do you agree? 
I think that's probably an overstatement. So one way of viewing the situation is that cities like Philadelphia and other government agencies should take a hard line and say, any time any social services provider, any business, any private organization refuses to respect the rights of gay people, they must give up their religious beliefs and they must toe the line and, and, and honor the, uh, uh, the government's non-discrimination law. One thing that may have been going on in the background here that may have also been, been persuasive to the justices is um, no gay couple in Philadelphia had ever been turned away from the foster system. The, the way it worked was if Catholic Social Services decided they couldn't certify a married same-sex couple to be a foster parent, they simply referred the couple to one of 20-some other agencies in the city of Philadelphia that did the same work for the city. So I, I, I think what we see here is uh, maybe an argument that, look, no gay couple was actually discriminated against. Probably no same-sex couple would ever be denied the right to foster a child. Um, there might just be a slight delay because they'd go to a different agency, but that allows Catholic Social Services to stand by its religious principle. So I, I guess I would disagree that this is a big, meaningful setback for gay rights. If you are subscribing to a sort of absolutist view of non-discrimination laws, then maybe you don't like this decision. As a practical matter, this decision probably represents the kind of accommodation that even some liberal scholars have been calling for that um, allows religious organizations to be faithful to their principles, without doing any actual practical harm to the ability of same-sex couples to function in society and to be treated equally. But this is another in a long line of victories for religious groups at the Supreme Court. This is a court that has taken a very sympathetic and expansive view of religion, has protected religion, whether it's a case challenging something as an establishment of religion or religious organizations or religious people saying that a law impinges on their free exercise rights. I think your impression is not wrong. The law has evolved in recent years in a way that is increasingly um, sympathetic to religion, increasingly insists that religion be treated the same as other kinds of functions and, and not be disadvantaged in some way. It's entirely likely that more cases like this are going to keep coming to the Supreme Court. This decision didn't break any new ground, really, in advancing the religious liberty rights of religious believers. It simply found a way to fit this situation into the court's existing law, which says religion can't be singled out for disadvantageous treatment, which is what the court thought was going on here. But, you know, th this opinion also doesn't signal that the court is closing the door to other theories and other claims of religious discrimination. So a decision announced the same day, the Obamacare case, is sort of largely seen as the court saying, look, enough of this, we're just done with the challenges to Obamacare. This decision more or less maintains a sort of status quo. Thanks, Steve. That's Steve Sanders of Indiana University's Morris School of Law. The effort to lift the Biden administration's moratorium on federal lease sales got a surprise win in federal district court on Tuesday. A federal judge in Louisiana granted a preliminary injunction 
lifting the administration's moratorium on new lease sales for oil and gas development on federal lands. Joining me is Brandon Barnes. Joining me is Brandon Barnes, Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst. So, Brandon, tell us about this decision. We had an interesting decision coming out of a Louisiana federal court uh, this week, and the judge put a preliminary injunction in place granting a motion request from 13 different states that had basically asked the court to put on hold the hold that the President Biden's administration put in place with respect to the federal government holding oil and gas lease sales, which is basically property that the federal government owns or holds uh, that they then lease back out for oil and gas development like Gulf of Mexico or Cook Inlet in Alaska or onshore for some areas like the Permian Basin in New Mexico. The judge decided there'd be irreparable harm. How so? Isn't it just money involved? Well, uh, economic harm can be one of the factors that goes into the irreparable harm calculus uh, for preliminary injunctions. We've seen it in other cases. Here, since you had the stewards being the 13 states, the plaintiffs were these 13 states, part of their standing, part of their ability to bring this claim revolved around the fact that they garner a significant amount of money from these federal oil and gas leases. They have a, There's a sharing agreement for some of that revenue. There's royalties involved for them. So it's a significant part of their business uh, at the state level in their budgeting process, but also the court uh, took into account a fair amount of you know, this idea that there would be job losses at some point, and that would impact the states as well. So what is the Biden administration doing now? This isn't about saying no, no more leases here. This is about wait and see. Let's let's figure this out. Yeah, it's been a pretty common tactic for presidents over the years. Um, most presidents have done it with different programs where, and, and politically, it's, it's, you know, a smart middle ground because what you do is you come in and you say, wait a second, we need to take a look. We need to take a look at this, do our study, check it out, make sure that, you know, we're appropriately, in this case, protecting all the people. We're getting the amount of money that the people deserve out of these private companies who are doing this development. And so we'll do a review. The review process has been going on since essentially the executive order came out in January of this year. And uh, it doesn't really have a set end time. And I think that's part of the problem, not explicitly, but certainly the oil and gas companies and the states are looking ahead and thinking, well, that's going to present a major challenge later on once the inventory starts to draw down in terms of new leases and new properties. But right now, they, they haven't suffered any harm at this point? You wouldn't think so from the company perspective. A lot of the companies opted to start to bulk up on leases and permits before the Biden administration came in, especially you know, towards the end of last year, as you know, President Biden was making his way around the campaign trail and, and making promises that we were going to put a moratorium in place or, or take another look at this, especially with respect to, to horizontal drilling and fracking. So there's a backlog. I think that the government in their some of their filings reported that the backlog is 7,700 permits to drill, not just leases, but actually approved permits to drill. Now, that's not abnormal given these programs that the drillers are putting in place last for a certain period of time because you need to have a good pipeline of wells to drill so that as your production declines on your current wells, you have the other ones coming online particularly for 
horizontal drilling where you can extend those laterals further into contiguous properties that maybe you didn't have before. And that helps sort of smooth out the economics of drilling in a certain area. The royalty rates for drilling have been the same for a century, so the Biden administration might think about raising them? That's certainly on the table. Uh, I think particularly Interior has made some of those statements. That's an easy middle path to discuss what's going on here. You know, the other idea is that maybe they need to tighten up some of the environmental review process they're doing for these. They're pretty boilerplate, and they've been hammered in the courts recently in a couple different cases around prior leases last year. And so the idea is maybe they might try to tighten up on climate change analysis, contribution of greenhouse gases from from these activities, in addition to looking at the royalties. What the judge based it on, that the Biden administration needs congressional approval to stop and think about this? That's right. So the real crux of the, the preliminary injunction opinion revolved around the fact that the Outer Continental Shelf Act, which is what essentially allows the federal government to run these offshore acreage lease sales, and the Mineral Leasing Act, which is the onshore version of that. Uh, Both of them have specific statutory requirements that, okay, for Outer Continental Shelf Act, you have to do a five-year plan. That five-year plan lays out exactly how many lease sales you're going to have. Once that is a final rule from Interior, then you run those leases. And then Mineral Leasing Act similarly says you have to run at least quarterly lease sales and every year and, and go forward in that way. The allegation, which the court grabbed onto, was, you know, the Biden administration as the president, the executive branch doesn't have the power to come in and say we're stopping that because those are coming out of the legislative branch. That would be Congress who has the power to do that and therefore put the preliminary injunction in place. Now, so this is a judge in Louisiana issuing a decision that covers the entire United States, a nationwide injunction from Louisiana. That's right. You know, it's, um, as uh, Justice Gorsuch has called them, cosmic injunctions because they apply to the entire universe. It's been a practice that got a lot more attention under President Trump's administration, particularly revolving around some of the immigration changes that he was trying to put in place, different policies at the border. And the use of them has increased over time. The idea is there's a district court, which is your lowest federal court, putting something in place that impacts the entire country. It's an interesting one. Uh, I think at a certain point, you know, you're just reading law review articles because it becomes academic. In practice, these are allowed and you can have competing ones um, because there's a sort of a co-equal jurisdiction across different district courts. And only up until such time as you have a, a more Supreme Court, which would be like an appeals court or the next level up, obviously, the U.S. Supreme Court, making a different decision or confirming that decision, do you then get into a place where you might have multiple jurisdictions agreeing. So it's allowed. Uh, some people don't like it. Others look at it more as, as a legal academic issue that can be discussed at, you know, in ivory towers. So either way, we have an injunction in place. And, and whatever happens in other courts, which there's another court considering the same issue in Wyoming right now, doesn't really matter until we get to the next level. So the Interior Department said... We're reviewing the judge's opinion and we'll comply with the decision. Does that mean they will not appeal? Uh, I doubt that. I think that they will appeal. Uh, certainly there are people who would be happy to appeal for them with an interest in this uh, as they were 
multiple interveners at the the district court level from the environmental interest side. I would expect them to appeal. You want to preserve your rights going forward anyway. But in one sense, you know, you're appealing a preliminary injunction. So the case is still live at the district court level anyway. So you can do it pretty quickly. But, you know, they do have a duty to abide by what the court said in the in the very near term. And the Fifth Circuit that they'll be appealing to is the most conservative circuit in the country. Do you have any inkling as to what it might do? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I didn't credit these preliminary injunction motions with much chance of success, largely because it's, it's very difficult to convince a court that a temporary, by its definition, a temporary uh, hold or moratorium for further study is something that's final enough for a court to grab onto. But they did that here, and, and the court, you can tell that the court knows that this decision was on the edge because you don't normally see a 44-page opinion on a preliminary injunction motion. And the court spent a lot of time justifying the idea that this is a final agency action. And there's plenty of support for that. And the court went through a full page of citations to show that. But there's certainly support on the other side. So I think that this is the case where you've got difficulty at both prongs of the preliminary injunction requirements. And it's a close call. Now, usually the close call does go to the court. So maybe in this instance, the uh, the Fifth Circuit would agree. But I don't think that the preliminary injunction itself is probably that impactful because this is going to have to also play out at the district court level on the merits part of the case. And by the time we get through that, I fully would expect that the Biden administration would already have a solution to this out, whether that's holding those lease sales while working on new rules or you know, going through some other avenue. Um, I think that the timing is it doesn't necessarily force these lease sales to happen right away. Thanks for being on the show, Brandon. That's Brandon Barnes, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. You can read more of Brandon's analysis by going to BIGO on the Bloomberg Terminal. Pro Football Hall of Famer Shannon Sharp was discussing the trade rumors around then-Atlanta Falcons star-wide receiver Julio Jones during his Fox Sports show, Undisputed, when Sharp decided to call Jones and ask him, live on the air. You want me to call and ask him? We'll ask him. Yes, I do. I'll call him. Call him right now on the air. Put him on. Are we calling? Okay, we're calling. calling. We're calling. Hmm. You watching, Julio? I really hope he answers here. Julio, have the guts to pick up the phone. <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. All right. Julio. Man, look, you want to go to the Cowboys, Julio, or you want to stay in Atlanta? Oh, man, no, I'm out of there, man. You He's out? out. He's out of there. He reminds me of we're on television Ask right him why I wore the Dallas. Jones was apparently unaware that the call and his revelations were being aired live on TV. Now, no lawsuits have been filed, but theoretically speaking, could Sharp or Fox Sports be sued? This week, Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court upheld the dismissal of Somerville Mayor Joe Curtatoni's lawsuit against Barstool for recording and publishing a phone interview because of his consent. So a lot depends on what state's rules are applied in the case of a recorded conversation. Here to discuss the legal implications of an ambush interview is Daniel Novak, 
a publishing industry attorney and chair of the New York State Bar Association Committee on Media Law. Let's get some basics first. The rule in most states is that only one party has to consent to a recording. So does that basically mean you can tape any conversation if you're in one of those states? Yes and no. If you are in the majority of states that we call one party consent, as long as you are a party to the conversation, you should be okay. But where it gets fuzzy can be where you're not a party. And so being one party or two party consent states are sort of irrelevant if you're not yourself the person that's engaged in the conversation. Now, most jurisdictions would just look at whether or not the people that were having the conversation had a realistic expectation that it would be between them. And so if you're sitting at a restaurant, you know, crowded restaurant next to a couple and they're talking and, you know, everything's within earshot, it could be okay to record potentially because you would say that anyone in that room could have heard that. So it gets a little trickier when you're not a, a party, but if you are, then it becomes relatively straightforward. But Undisputed is taped in California, which is a two-party consent state. Tell us about the law there. So California, despite being very media-friendly in in many respects, they have one of the best what we call anti-slap laws that discourages plaintiffs from bringing baseless defamation suits. They happen to have a more restrictive recording statute. And so California is one of those two-party states. I think there's about maybe a dozen or so of them. And so in California, what Shannon Sharp did has criminal and civil ramifications. However, the call presumably went to Georgia. I don't actually know where Julio was at the moment, but for the sake of argument, he was based there at the time. And so it created a clash of laws because when you look at two different parties, it's not always a given the law of which state would apply. Logically, it seems like the law of the state where the conversation is being recorded should apply. Well, it's tricky because you would say it's being recorded in California, right? The arguments, by the way, are persuasive on both sides. One side of it would be, well, look, why are we protecting someone, Jones, in this instance, whose own state says this is fine, have at it, you know, record if you wish, at the behest of a state, you know, California that has no interest in protecting Georgia residents. On the other hand, California could have an interest in saying, well, look, we want to discourage this type of behavior on the recorder side, right? It's not just about protecting Georgia residents. It's actually just telling California residents, don't do this. And one of the factors that courts have looked at is, well, How feasible is it for people to sort of moderate their behavior based on the location of the person they're either calling or being called by? You could be calling someone to record them, but you could similarly decide that when someone calls you to hit record. And so there was a case recently where a Georgia company was calling California residents. And so not only did California have an interest in protecting their residents from being recorded, but the court found that It wouldn't be too untenable for a Georgia company to know who they're calling. Most people know who they're calling. And so it wouldn't be unreasonable for a Georgia company to say, well, look, this call is a California resident. We need to alert them that the call is going to be recorded. And if they don't like that, they can hang up the phone. So in that circumstance, the equities are all sort of lined up. But you could see how when it's reversed and it's a California resident calling a Georgia resident, it gets a little trickier because, again, it becomes about discouraging. And here in this instance, yes. Shannon Sharp probably could know that his target within 
Georgia, but not everybody is going to have the presence of mind to do that quick mental calculus of where they are. And so the court in California might conclude, we don't want Shannon Sharp to have to consult, you know, a Lexus search to figure out what Julio Jones' residence is or, or ask him, hey, are you on vacation right now? Have you crossed state lines? <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, the, the better policy is probably just to discourage it outright. And so, like I said, a court could go either way on that question. Does there have to be an expectation of privacy? Because going back to what you said in the beginning about, let's say, a conversation in a restaurant, here you're a football star talking to a guy who does a sports show on TV. I mean, do you have any expectation that what you're saying is not going to be recorded? Yeah, and it feels like splitting hairs, but but he does. He has an expectation not in the content of his speech, but literally in the sound and, and reproduction of it. And so... It sounds funny that that would be what the tipping point is, but California law does not want people using electronic means to record people. And so rather than trying to have an analysis that invites all these complicated factors, like what was the objective expectation of both sides, what was their subjective beliefs, et cetera, California has created this bright line rule, which is if you want to preserve this conversation for posterity, you need to ask the other side or let them know. And then again, they can decide whether they want to continue. And that's why, you know, when you and I receive calls that are automated, it often says this call will be recorded. And that's your cue. If you don't like that, hang up the phone. What about Fox Sports? Because it's the deep pocket here. If it were sued, do the same factors come into play or are there other factors? So Fox Sports is an interesting sort of extension of this because in the vast majority of recording and wiretap cases, there's an intermediary. So if, if Shannon Sharp was just an ex-player who had recorded his friend's conversation and handed it to Fox Sports, Fox Sports would be protected under the Supreme Court ruling in a case called Bartnicki versus Bopper. And in that case, they essentially said that if your hands aren't dirty, that you're not going to be responsible. And that's just designed to give the news media some breathing room, because oftentimes the most important material of the public interest in the chain of title, there's been something that gone wrong in terms of, you know, legality. And so you can't police the media for accurate reporting on a stolen, you know, or, or recorded material. You know, that's all of leak reporting, really, right? And so here, we have a difference because Fox Sports was live on the air, and there's volitional conduct. They're the ones that are hitting, on one sense, Shannon's hitting record on his phone, or, or he's not recording it, really. He's just talking out loud on speakerphone, and you can hear his voice. It's really... The recorder is actually Fox Sports, who has their cameras trained on on Shannon. He's mic'd up for audio. Now, you could argue that, again, this is what's been reported. They weren't aware that he planned to do this. And so maybe you can find some room in your heart to sort of forgive them that this was like an emerging situation and, and they didn't have the presence of mind to yell cut or, you know, take it to a commercial or something. But the call lasted about a minute. And so at a certain point, you're all in. And so the, the Bartnicki precedent, in my view, does not really protect them because, again, it, there's no transfer to a middleman. The live nature of these shows makes it difficult. Yeah, and I think it's just a consequence of the formats for these shows. You know, they can be taped live. They don't necessarily involve a lot of careful vetting of material. You know, if this was a news program as opposed to commentary, there's probably a lawyer in the building that you can say, hey, can I run this idea by you? And they'll say, you need to get consent. And so because this was not in their wheelhouse and Shannon Sharp was probably going off book, 
I think that they just didn't have the presence of mind. I, I would find it unlikely that they had a lawyer standing there, you know, with like the red button, the way that you might <laughs> in other circumstances like reality television, where you think something could go wrong and you need to be able to be on a 10 second delay or something like that. Now, I don't know what procedures they have in place. They could be on a delay. There could be all these ways that it could have been slowed down. And tell us a little about the specifics of the California law here. It comes in under the specific California anti-recording statute. And I should say that it's not terribly remunerative. The statute, I think, says $5,000 per offense or I think triple your actual damages. And just like in defamation or privacy, it's very hard to assign a, a dollar figure to damages. And so the only reason I could see Julio Jones bringing a claim is just on principle. And I think he's already been sort of vindicated in the public side. People were upset that Sharp did this. And so uh, it's not a high upside play. The the actual legal side of it has some complexity, you know, like we discussed, is California law really going to apply here? But, you know, people have sued. Uh, Barstool Sports was sued for recording. They won their case. Uh, it was a, It had a different fact pattern, but it wouldn't be the first time that somebody felt put off by being recorded and decided to sue. Thanks for being on the show. That's Daniel Novak, publishing industry attorney. And I know that Tanvi Valsangakar is a co-writer of your article on this issue. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Bosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.